Hello, everybody, and welcome to Voices and Visions, as well as Directors Club. And, yeah, I haven't done one of these sort of cross... Crossover! I never know how Crossover. to say this. I always wind up saying, like, cross-pollinated, but that just sounds weird and gross and like I'm a, I'm a bee jumping from flower to flower. Um, but I, I just basically put out an episode for both shows. Um, I no longer you know, host director's club on a regular basis. I'll, I'll appear on as a guest, as most of you know, by now, the great Brad and Al are doing a fantastic job with director's club and putting on, having some amazing discussions that sometimes get to like four hours, but it's never dull and they know their stuff. So I'm, I'm really glad that I, uh, recruited them to basically take uh, take over and take on the role but yeah once in a while i decide because i talk to you know two filmmakers maybe maybe not household names but certainly great guests with great stories and they just turn out to be great interviews i figure why not uh allow for for both voices and visions and directors club to to have a nice little marriage um with a particular episode and this is one of those episodes I, uh, I I really, really am excited for the future of Voices and Visions because, yes, initially it started out as, I want to continue the tradition of interviews with, you know, filmmakers and musicians, but then suddenly it hit me. I know a lot of great, talented, creative artists. You know, people like Patrick Rapole and Bill Ackerman and, you know, co-workers here, you know, at the school where I teach, and it's just there there's so many amazing people in the world that I want to hear their stories and I try to focus mainly on the creative arts but as you heard in a fairly recent episode I went back to um my alma mater Elmhurst College and interviewed a former professor that I found to be a really inspirational figure and that was really um tremendous for me and very nerve-wracking to some degree <laughs> but anyway this episode of director's club slash voices and visions i should say it's a bonus episode for director's club um two conversations with two very interesting directors and creative artists of, of two very different types i mean one has been able to essentially film uh you know a horror comedy called cooties uh, with starring, you know, people like Rain Wilson and Elijah Wood and Allison Pill. That movie was a lot of fun. <sighs> Jonathan and Carrie's more recent film, Bushwick, which actually just comes out today, uh, Friday, August 25th, 2017, uh, is a really interesting political action satire, I want to say. See, I, I, I like the film, but tonally, it's really, like, not not necessarily inconsistent, just, uh, like, it, its vision is really complex in terms of where we're at in in society, especially in light of what's happened at Charlottesville, uh, and, you know, it's just, a, it's, it's one of those experiences I, I, I had where I had mixed feelings, but I walked away thinking positive thoughts about the filmmakers especially and the intent and the uh the score by asap rock 
Um, and just like, again, the visceral nature of, of their story, where it really puts you in the action and not in a shaky cam necessarily kind of fashion. It's just really a really good old fashioned sort of Carpenter-esque throwback, uh, but also politically relevant and timely. So check out Bushwick. It's um, opening in limited release. I'm not sure if it's on VOD. I should have checked, but it might be. And these two filmmakers, uh, well, I interviewed one of them, I should say, Jonathan. We had a really good talk about you know what it's like being a director and getting projects off the ground, but also what it's like to make a movie like Bushwick. Um, it was it was a really good conversation, despite the fact that for some reason I initially walked in and probably because it was first thing in the morning, uh, thinking that they were related for some reason. I don't know why. So I messed up, but I left that in there simply because guess what? Interview interviewers make mistakes, and we're human, and sometimes we can. Um, I mean, I know we can also be editors, but I also wanted to keep it pure and simple. And the same goes uh, for Catherine Kraft, uh, an acquaintance of mine, uh, one of my closest friends, Dan Solomon, as I mentioned during the interview. Uh, you know, I've known him since, I think, sophomore year uh, of, uh, of high school. And yeah, it was either sophomore or junior year. But it was just like... We clicked, you know, and, you know, we had the same taste in movies and music and stuff. And we just we just had a good time together. And years later, he's gone on to be an established journalist who would be, you know, make appearances on CNN and have a, you know, like a, just an incredible career as a journalist. Um, and his wife is the guest, um, Catherine Kraft, who's just as, as talented in, in terms of writing and you know, and the next thing you know, she's over at HBO um, working on, you know, um, like this this fellowship and just just having an incredible run lately in terms of projects. And uh, we discuss her latest. That's a very personal story between a young girl and 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 her car that I wanted to promote and discuss and just kind of catch up with with her because I've certainly talked to Dan on, on several occasions at least once a year for um, Voices and Visions, formerly Pop Culture Club. You know, we all, we all me and Dan always like to talk about music. So um, I wanted to talk to, to Kat about just, you know, what it's like being uh, a screenwriter, a um, filmmaker and what it's like what the HBO experience was like for crying out loud so um, and of course we, we we delve deeply into her Indiegogo project that I hope you will all contribute to there will be a link in the show notes so instead of blathering on and on and on I got a couple of interviews here that I'm very excited to share please visit nowplayingnetwork.net uh, directorsclubpodcast.com as well as VoicesVisions.net. If you're primarily just a subscriber to Directors Club and want to keep up with what me and Patrick are doing these days, just go to NowPlayingNetwork.net because there we have um, Tracks of the Damned, which Patrick Rapole is working hard on lately, and uh, myself, Voices and Visions, because I love having conversations and these interviews have been among the most fulfilling experiences of my life. So I hope you will join me on the journey there. Please stay subscribed to Directors Club because Brad and Al are fantastic at what they're doing. 
Um, and I hope you enjoy these two conversations with directors whose names I think you should become familiar with based on their incredible personalities and stories that are about to unfold right here, right now. I'm, I'm stoked to talk with you today because I this turned out to be just a really timely film, and <laughs> for for what's going on in the country today, man, it's it's pretty yeah yeah. It's, it's it's very weird how um, how how the world is 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 turning out to be. <laughs> I would like to step in and thank uh, the wonders of Skype for making me sound like I'm underwater or at the beach. Don't know why. I apologize. I will say that at least the guest sounds great in all his infinite wisdom. Please continue. One of our first films we ever did was called The Shortest Race. And that was a project for Nike. And they asked us to do a, um, a short film with, based on speed. And that, that we could do anything we wanted. You know, they gave us a little bit of money. Um, and it was like a really cool um, opportunity to just start shooting and it had a little budget and we knew people would see it but of course being you know, kind of wise ass uh creatives we were like well we're gonna take this idea and do the stupidest possible thing you know so we made this race the shortest race which was uh like something like 39.9 inches you know some ridiculous amount of length and um you know we just thought that that was funny just flipping this idea of sports on its head and um really, you know, just taking a, a jab at it. So you look at, you look at it differently, you know, like what is a race and really, you know, well, you know, hopefully taking like the stupidest in and the craziest idea. But then at the same time, you, you actually are kind of commenting on, um, something, you know, in, in that, case, um, you know, just, just the idea of Nike and the idea of, of sports and, and how insane people get about all that. And, you know, but at the same time, it's also kind of a love letter to it. So, you know, it's trying to do a lot of things at the same time while approaching it from this, this wacky, um, idea. And I think that that's followed us through our career where our, you know, a short film we did called boob, which, um, was also, you know, taking uh, horror horror movies, the, you know, I, the idea that horror movies have taken everything you can think of and made them scary from, you know, sharks to um, little kids to whatever. And uh, we made a boob that jumps off your body and uh, attacks people. Uh, and then, so that led us to Cooties, which, you know, again, was this idea of zombies, you know, but then what if they're kids? And then all the way through to Bushwick, which... Um, Again, when we when we were thinking of this, we thought it was the most insane idea. People thought it was a comedy at first because it was so ridiculous and silly. And uh, yeah, Texas seceding from the United States—that's that's, that's going to be hilarious. Um, yeah, let's see what you do with that. Um, but taking it very seriously, playing it very seriously, and to us that 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 makes it even more funny, um, even though maybe it's not necessarily like a comedy. But we do play it straight, and then you know you can kind of take what you want from there. Um, not to say that Bushwick is a comedy at all, 
Um, but the idea of taking this crazy idea and playing it as straight as possible. Yeah, it's it, it reminded me a little bit of you know uh, the work of John Carpenter or even George Romero, just because they would always infuse their genre storytelling mainly in in you know in action and horror and and infuse it with social commentary. That was that was kind of their brand of of, of storytelling was, and and they all they both had a, a very dark sense of humor, of course. Uh, you know, they always injected their their films with that and. I, I, you know, I think this is just a really interesting, you know, sort of political parable. But what was the initial motiv- motivating factor behind conceiving this particular story with with your brother? Where, where were you guys when you sort of had the lightning bolt moment? Well, Carrie's Carrie's not my brother, but um, I thought you guys were brothers for some reason. Yeah, no, <laughs> he's uh, he's like my brother. We ha- we've been, we've worked together a long time. Right. Uh, okay. But uh, yeah, it was actually Carrie. Carrie was living in Bushwick. Um, and this was before a lot of the gentrification. He was one of the original gentrifiers. Um, but so he was living in that neighborhood and it was just this crazy diverse neighborhood at the time. And at the, um, the beginning of the gentrification, which kind of happens to every neighborhood in Brooklyn. And at that point he, he had been pushed further out. So he was, um, he was just there and he's, you know, saw all these different people kind of mixing together, um, and he saw, I guess he heard a quote from um, Rick Perry, who was the governor of Texas. Uh, yes. okay. And so that, you know, the, the, he would, the, um, Rick Perry said that they should succeed, you know, secede from the nation. Texas should secede. And um, so, he, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's like this crazy, crazy, silly, insane idea that should never really even be a reality. And, um, you know, so then we took that and started developing a, a script. If they really were going to do that, um, what would they do? And, you know, possibly they would invade um, some of the big cities in the United States, like New York and Washington, D.C. and Chicago and L.A. And um, so then, you know, well, obviously we're going to do this on a super, super low budget. So how do we execute that? And so we, we kind of thought of this idea of, you know, what if a girl was coming home from college and she came up out of the subway and there's helicopters and uh, this military invasion. And she has to figure this out as she goes along. And, um, you know, while all this insane stuff is happening, which at the time was not when we first started thinking of this idea, we, you know, 9-11 was still fresh in our heads too. Um, you know, basically just scarred from that or dealing with that in real life. And the insanity and the confusion that we dealt with on that day. So kind of mixing those, mixing that all together. And um, yeah, that was kind of the, the, the beginning of, of that idea. You know, I, I read previously, too, that you've been, you've been working uh, yeah, on this story for years, even before Cooties. I'm curious to you know, know more about kind of having patience, I guess. <laughs> were, were there a lot of rewrites or financing issues or do just some stories sort of simply take their time to become fully realized to where you guys are ready to dive right in? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm actually, uh, just an aside, I'm really excited to, to listen to some more of your, um, of the podcast. You know, I listen, I have like my, um, my few uh, film and director podcasts like DGA and um, um, slash film and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm always looking for more really good uh, film-centric uh, podcasts, so I'm really excited to dig in. But I'm not exactly sure, you know, if you you probably have a ton of um, uh, 
directors that are, are starting out and, and want to um, kind of get into the industry and are listening. But, um, but yeah, so I think that this is, uh, the Bushwick is like a great, uh, it was our, 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 our film school or Hollywood school or, you know, uh, industry school, because essentially, you know, like I said, we, we got this start doing short films and, and right from the start though, those short films were just us wanting to film and us, you know, just getting a camera and finally getting to the point where somebody like Nike would, you know, actually pay us. And then even at that point, you know, we still had, no, you know, we didn't know what a producer was. We didn't know what a DP was. So, um, you know, when we called a camera house up to to rent a, a high speed camera, they're like, uh, are you the producer? And we we're like, what's a producer? And uh, so we, we ended up getting like the camera house to produce it. And but I think the, the great lesson with from the start was it was just like doing it. Sure. I mean, it didn't matter that we didn't know the rules or anything like that. Uh, so we just started doing it, and um, that's basically what happened with um, with Bushwick. Was that uh, you know seven years ago or something? We really just had no idea how to get a movie made. So we just came up with this idea, and we just you know put feelers out to you know um, get, see if we could get writers. You know we didn't know how to write, so we we knew that we need we needed some help writing, and. Um, so we just kind of, yes, started figuring out and finally, you know, connected with one person that connected us to a writer. Then we started working that writer. And um, ma mainly most of these connections came through some of our short films. So, you know, we had already done some stuff, but so we had gotten into some festivals and we had gotten a few kind of, you know, connections. Um, and that's what connected us to the, the XYZ guys, the XYD, XYZ films who, who helped us produce um Bushwick and then um but from there it was yeah it was just a lot of writing rewriting um and then trying to get it cast you know like I said learning how Hollywood works and or not Hollywood but how making films work and XYZ has this crazy insight into pre-sales and all these details in 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 terms of ways to get a movie funded um so you're not losing money and um, the 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 crazy thing was that as we were doing this, we had been doing that for uh, I don't know a year or two um, in terms of developing the script, and then Cooties came through our short film boob, where we get this random call from Elijah Woods Production Company right. saying, "We saw your short film boob. Do you want to pitch on this movie called Cooties?" And it almost sounded like a prank call. Um, <laughs> You know, because we had made a short film boob that, you know, who the hell is going to let us make another movie based on that? Um, so, you know, we got that call and we, we spent a, a few weeks prepping, uh, you know, to pitch this. We flew out to L.A. Uh, we were late for the pitch because we didn't know where we were in L.A. And we were like, oh, my God, we're blowing our one chance right away. But we went in and we had a, a great meeting. We, you know, we really seemed to click with the producers there. Um, that's the SpectraVision guys. And, um, so then in the middle of us working to get, uh, our movie Bushwick made, we ended up, um, jumping on cooties and, you know, that was just a whirlwind of, um, craziness too, because, you know, from going from directing short films to all of a sudden talking to Rain Wilson in a cafe, um, and Elijah Wood and, um, the scene and, you know, 
all, all these amazing people that I've, you know, we watched on TV and just uh, admired. Um, so that was like, a, that was pretty insane. But so then we did Cooties. And then once we were done with Cooties, we got, you know, we had so much more experience. So it was, it was really great. And then we came back, we did a test sequence to show that, you know, we could really pull off um, Bushwick in these long takes like we wanted to. And um, from, from there, we, we just worked on casting. <clears throat> and um, that's part of the slowest, longest, painful process in, in getting independent or any film made, I think, nowadays, is that, um, you know, if, if you go into Sundance or you're, you're trying to get your movie financed, um, you know, even a low budget movie, it, you, you kind of need uh, a name nowadays, you know, uh, yeah. it's, it's a c crazy world because you need that. Um, you know, it's really hard to get fin financing if you don't have that. And then it's really hard to get, you know, distribution or, or get into these festivals, um, w without a, a, an actor. But at the same time, the more well-known actors are, um, are you know usually really good actors so you know at least if you can pull that off and get an, a good actor in you're you know you are one step up but um it is a long slow process so then we you know just sending out letters um sending out the script waiting for the uh actors to read and that's just a long slow process and um you know we we had a lot of close calls there were some really great actors um uh, previously attached um that ended up falling out for whatever reason, schedule or, or whatever. Um, but we finally, like all the stars aligned and we we finally, um, got to make it in the, the, uh, winter of 2015. Nice. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about the casting. Cause I've, I've always enjoyed, um, Brittany Snow's, uh, screen presence. I mean, primarily known for the pitch perfect films at this point, but I, I thought she was really good in a couple of indie films, uh, the vicious kind and, this kind of underseen, like psychological horror movie with Jeffrey Combs called "Would You Rather." <laughs> yes, that, that yeah, was right. really fun and crazy and wild and weird. <laughs> so I recommend it, but it's, it's certainly an acquired taste. Um, but I thought she was really great in that, so I'm really happy to you know see her in, in in your film. And and Dave was definitely an interesting choice to play the lead. So just talk more about why, uh, you know why you went with those choices. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, we love that that the poster for the the Would You Rather. Um, oh yeah, it's it's awesome. There's like a razor blade right up right. against the eyeball. It's, yeah. it's totally insane. Um, but yeah, you know the the kind of the the quick answer in terms of both of them is that we liked um, kind of playing off of what they were known for, sure. uh, <clears throat> almost subverting the idea that you're taking someone from Pitch Perfect. So you start the movie, oh, this is the girl from Pitch Perfect, and she's coming home from her Pitch Perfect world of college, and and then just blowing the shit up of her, you know, out of her boyfriend, and, you know, having her running down the street, and, you know, within the first 15 minutes, she's almost getting raped, and, um, you know, just totally re reversing what you know of her. Um, so we kind of like that idea, and the same with, um, with Dave, that... Uh, you know, that he's known for being this big, macho, um, masculine action star that just kicks ass, is indestructible. And, you know, right from the start, he, he you know, he is pretty macho in our movie, but he doesn't want to be. He's, um, he's this soldier that uh, is really, 
just been taken through the ringer and has post-traumatic stress and uh, really doesn't want to fight anymore. And all the way through to the conclusion of his character, um, which I don't want to spoil, but uh, we feel like uh, the way that we resolve his character is in a way that is kind of very opposite of how normal um, uh, action heroes um, you might resolve their characters, uh, to, you know, without spoiling it. I think that that's the best way to do it. I think it's a, it's a very, um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but, but yeah, so I like that idea of, um, of flipping that, those guys in their head. And then, um, you know, we got the opportunity to talk to them and it was, um, it was, it was awesome because they really, they really liked the idea of the long takes, um, I think that that's something that actors um, really appreciate because they know that um, they're not going to get chopped up. What they do is going to be there. And so it's, it, is a, it is a challenge for them because, and I think it's a challenge as for directors too, because um, unless you have a huge budget and you could just keep trying things over and over and over and over again, um, which we didn't have that opportunity, you know, you, you have a certain amount and, and then you have to, to make a decision, you know, what was that is, was that take, you know, did that do what we wanted? And, you know, it, it's like directing anything, you know, you, at some point you can't just keep doing more and more, you have to make a decision and um, otherwise you'll never get your movie made, but it's just um, kind of uh, really amplified with the, with the long takes is that you really have to make that decision you know, when you do, when you do it, you, you try to minimize all the problems as much as you can each time you do the take. And every time you do the take, it gets better and better and better. And everything seems to fall more and more in place. Um, but in the end, it, you know, it is challenging. And I think that that's what drew both of them in is that they were really excited for that challenge. And, um, you know, at the beginning of the, the production, we were ready to give Dave Batista uh, like an earpiece so in case, you know, in the middle of a five minute take, he couldn't remember a line or something, we could, we could, we could whisper in his ear, but we, we found out immediately on the first day that that was just not needed and he just came prepared and, and really, really killed it. Um, but yeah, the, the, the short answer is that they definitely were excited about that challenge. Yeah. And, and you did a great job sort of subverting the, their personas and, playing with the audience expectations and you know you mentioned the long takes of course and in terms of the cinematography i i would think that there's a little bit of influence here uh, you know with children of men and that really incredible sequence in in true detective because yeah. there are a lot of ambitious one take tension inducing set pieces uh can you talk a little bit about what influenced the style and working with your cinematographer to sort of achieve those kind of uh, bravura shots, as they say. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And children of men and, and true detective definitely, um, were big influences. And, um, yeah, we, um, we work closely with our, our DP Lyle Vincent, who's uh, amazing. He's done, um, movies like, uh, a girl walks home alone at night and bad batch. And, um, this movie that's coming out thoroughbred who did that did really well in Sundance. Um, he's amazing. He works on us with a lot of our commercial work too. And, um, then, uh, we also worked with, um, an amazing, uh, camera operator, Frank Larson. 
And uh, at the time, it was, you know, the Movi was, um, which is a, it's like a smaller Steadicam. Um, if you're, you know, if you work in the industry, you probably know it or have heard of it. Um, but it's like a small Steadicam. And it was this new kind of um, gimbal rig that was originally, I think, developed for, um, to, for drones, you know, to keep the drone camera steady and not wobbly. Okay. And so now they, they, you know, somebody got the good idea to make it so you could hold it in your hand. And, um, you know, so that's basically what allowed us to achieve, achieve a lot of our long takes in, um, on a low budget. So we had the, the Alexa mini, which was very new at the time. And we put it on this, um, this Movi, uh, camera rig and, um, yeah, it was, it, it was pretty insane because, you know, you know, in the end, I don't think most people will notice it because usually the big budget action movies are using things like, uh, you know, big cranes like the techno crane and things like that. And they can achieve shots like us where you, you know, you'll go down an alley and jump over a fence and then go into a door or something like that. Whereas we had to do it by handing off the, the, the camera rig to like three people and, you know, behind the scenes, it was pretty insane and really um, took a lot of creativity to, to get those fluid shots. Um, whereas in a big budget movie, you just throw in a techno crane and it flies over everything and it's, it's nice and easy. Um, but in terms of why, you know, the, the, the main reason was, you know, we originally thought of this film was to, to do it in a, in a one take um, just to, to really get you to really have you stuck with the characters, to really see this as happening in real time um, and really play with that idea of that if you come up out of the subway into an invasion, it's just total chaos and totally insanity and then play that out to the end um, in, in close to real time. Um, so that was, that was kind of one main idea. Then also the idea of trying not to, to glorify the violence. I think um, in too many too many action films, um, you know, the easy example is Michael Bay. The action is just beautiful and it's awesome and it really is cool. And, uh, you know, as action movie lovers, we, we love that, that for um, escapist type of films and um, can really um, appreciate it. But for this movie, um, with this idea, we wanted to try to keep it more grounded and you, you know, not glorify those moments when someone's, you know, gets shot or someone gets hurt, um, that you have to stick with them and you have to deal with the repercussions of the violence. Um, so th that was our intent. Who knows <laughs> how it can be interpreted. And a lot of people say it, it reminds them of video games. <clears throat> and, um, you know, we think that that's an interesting interpretation because it, it certainly does um, have aspects of that. And um, we think that that's, that's kind of cool because there is something about a, the, when you're following a video game or you're, you're in the video game, there is a more um, visceral yeah. kind of uh, feeling that you are, you are in it, um, which is different. different. And I, we feel that even though we're doing these long takes, we did have a, a lot of um, cinematic um, control you know, we didn't just follow the whole time. We did. We we tried very consciously to to make sure that we were um, creating shots that have impact rather than just following. Um, but again, that's that's uh, that was our intent, at least. Yeah, and I think it was successful. I mean, I think 
there is a sense of control and confidence behind the camera throughout uh, because I mean a lot of it a lot of action sequences do tend to rely on uh, you know especially in the light of a, a director like Paul Greengrass just the, the the shaky cam documentary cinema verite almost approach to an action sequence but um, it also reminded me, and it's probably why I got <laughs> a little confused with, with you, you, you two potentially being brothers, was that uh, I recently just saw Good Time by the uh, Softy Brothers. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's a really, uh, again, intense and visceral experience that makes you feel you're right up there with the characters. And oddly enough, one of the questions at the Q&A was, did you intend to make this feel like a video game at times? <laughs> so that just seems to be like, yeah, like kind of a natural response to, you know, whether, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a first person point of view, like Hardcore Henry or something like that. But it's just, yeah, when you feel right up there on screen, I think that's a compliment, you know, and I mean, it's like, even if you're not a big fan of video games or, yeah, it does have like a sort of Michael Bay kind of uh, quality to it where it's, yeah, that was cool, man. But there are consequences here, you know. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's what's really important too. Is that you, you you put a lot of weight behind the story and the characters to where it's not just like, oh, that was cool, you know. I mean, I, I read one art one article that kind of like put a headline that just said Nazi punching movie <laughs> or something like that. Like it described <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, so I mean, maybe that'll help <laughs> a little bit publicity wise. But did you? Um, kind of intend on this kind of being a, a little bit of a cautionary tale about where we're at at this point in time and you know because to me it functions as a critique more or less but was it like was the social commentary there like first and foremost uh, above like the genre elements yeah I mean, we definitely approach it from that and you know um, and it's such a hard uh, it's such a, a hard balancing act because you know, we definitely had that idea of that. It, yeah, it's a cautionary tale, um, but at the same time, it's this crazy action movie based on this crazy idea. So, you know, like I said, with the the way we filmed it, with the way it's concluded, we think it's definitively a cautionary tale that isn't trying to glorify or promote um, the, the the divisiveness that's in the country right now. You know, we're we're trying to say, you know behind just a, a fun movie that, you know, without preaching, without it getting too political. And I think that that's, that's one of the tough things with what's happening nowadays. And with, um, you know, when we, when we premiered, um, at Sundance, it was the, the day after, uh, Trump was elected and there's this political climate that I think people really thought this was going to be a movie where we like just condemn one side and really take a stance and, I think that that's um, that's definitely not what we wanted. We, like you said, we wanted it to be more of a cautionary tale with questions. We wanted to bring up questions, and to us, great art doesn't preach a specific political agenda. It raises questions, so you can make up your own political mind. and And we hope that it's it's more of a you're not making up your mind based on politics. Your politics, you're making up your mind based on kind of a morality. And, you know, it, it's more about like, do you really, you know, how, how far do you want to go when you're arguing your political views? You know, we have family members that are different, have different political views. We have friends down south. And in the end, 
you know, we disagree with them and we would disagree with them to the end with politics, but there's in no way do we ever want to take up arms against them and fight them. And um, it's just sad when you do see um, you know, the violence erupting in the country and, um, you, you know, basically neighbors fighting. It's uh, to us, that's, that's the real um, cautionary tale and the real stupid um, end, you know, possible end point to, to all this. Um, but, but hopefully, you know, it will, it will kind of, people will see, you know, wh whether it's in the news or in art that, um, you know, the, the, taking the violence to that, that extreme is just, um, it's not the answer. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a great note to, uh, close things out on, but I'm, I'm also curious, what do you, uh, both foresee being next? Is there a particular genre that you really want to tackle or, a story that excites you to tell in the future? I mean, obviously, you don't have to go into great detail, but is, do you, are you guys working on something uh, new and exciting soon? Yep, and uh, to continue our, our uh, Hollywood uh, um, kind of uh, school uh, for us, you know, not that I'm actually teaching anything, but what we've learned, you know, from the last two movies is that it's hard to get one movie made. Um, so focusing on just getting one movie made, you know, is definitely, you know, it took us seven years to get Bushwick made. So, um, right now what we do, what we're doing is we're, we're developing a few movies, um, and we're pitching on other movies, you know, with our, with our agents. Um, so we'll get scripts and we'll read them. And then, um, if we respond, we, we, um, we pitch on them and, um, you know, I can't even say how, you know, we've done that a million times and we've gone through many layers and then you get to the, the fifth layer and then somebody decides they don't like you. So then you're, you know, after all that work, you're, you're back to square one. So we're doing that. And, you know, there's a lot of great scripts that we love that we've done that with. Um, but at the same time, we're developing um, about three ideas of our own. Uh, one of them is a Chinese monster movie um, based on uh, the, the monster that's in the, um, like the Chinese New Year parades. Oh. Uh, so, so that's a, a really cool script that we're developing. Um, and then, and we're working with XYZ again on that. We have, a um, another film, um, that we're developing with, um, writer Scott Reynolds, who writes for, um, Marvel's Jessica Jones and Inhumans. And, um, that's a robbery. It's called Robbery 101 and it's a, a heist film. And then, um, uh, another movie with that writer as well. Um, so yeah, we're, you know, we're just working on a lot of things and, uh, trying to, trying to get one off the ground. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, because we're, uh, two guys, um, it helps a little bit to, to be developing that many projects at once. But, um, I think that that's, uh, another good idea. And, uh, if any, um, up and coming directors are out there, you know, definitely, uh, <laughs> the more projects you can try to have in development at once, the, the better chance that something's going to happen, I think, is what we've learned over the last few years. But, yeah. Well, thanks, Jonathan. Really appreciate it, man. And, and best of luck with this film and all future projects. Be in touch, all right? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. You got a fast car And I want a ticket you anyway Maybe we make a deal Maybe together we can get somewhere Any place is better Starting from zero, got nothing to lose Maybe we'll make something Me, myself, I got nothing to prove 
So I first met today's guest through her equally talented husband, who has been a friend of mine since high school. He's also appeared on this show in the past and is an accomplished writer by the name of Dan Solomon. I've known Kat as a truly motivated and passionate creator in various fields of the fine arts, an experienced playwright, screenwriter, activist, and happens to possess a truly charismatic and enthusiastic nature that is infectious to all of those that come into contact with her. She founded Con- the Conspire Theater, a nonprofit that uses theater to work with women during and after incarceration, was a teaching artist for various arts education organizations, has worked for the Lilith Fund for re- reproductive equity and has an MFA in screenwriting which has recently led to a great deal of success in the world of filmmaking which we'll elaborate on shortly. Austin critics have called Catherine's work poignant, an experiment of imagination, irresistible, and her plays incorporate audience participation at its finest. So, I cannot be more enthusiastic to welcome to the show the one and only Catherine. <laughs> Thank Kraft. you. I am very excited to be here. I'm very excited that you read my bio. I put a lot of work into it. <laughs> so I'm glad it's getting some use. <laughs> of course. I mean, because it's 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 quite a, a list of incredible accomplishments and because, you know, I know a lot of people who just sort of dabble and kind of just, you know, maybe do a few things here and there. But it's it seems to have led to a lot of recognition and certainly just a, a lot of great accomplishment <laughs> in general. I, I feel like I'm like a collie dog. Like they can't they always have to be doing something like they need a job at all times. I, I feel like I kind of move through life in that way. Yeah, I think that's I think that's great, and I think that uh, you know your passion is is evident, and it certainly fuels my excitement for what you're writing and what you're currently doing. But I want to go back a little bit too because I I don't know the specific history as well. Maybe we've discussed it when you lived in Chicago and we had you had wonderful um, <laughs> potluck dinners and house shows, of course. But I'm curious. Because, you know, this is just something I ask in general, but how did your passion for the creative arts and writing begin? Was it in high school or was it even sooner to where you became drawn to theater and film and just self-expression in general? Oh, yeah, I've been doing well, I'm a theater kid. I'm just like a straight up theater nerd. And that's from birth, basically. Like, I remember going to see the musical Cats, which, of course, now I'm, like, too good for. But when I was, you know, it was, like, my first big theatrical experience. And it, I was like, this is what I want to do. And I'd sing along to all the Broadway musicals at home. And um, I went to, like, I did children's theater. I, I've just done it my whole life, basically. Um, and I've been a writer my whole life as well um, in one form or another. And I went to like I went to an arts magnet high school in Dallas to Booker T, which is like the fame. What you know, it's like the fame high school. Um, and I did theater there. I did some playwriting, a lot of costume design, some performance. Um, it's just always been what I do has been theater and filmmaking and screenwriting is actually pretty new to me. It's just really been in the past four or five years that I've transitioned into filmmaking um, and 
Yeah, but before that, it was all theater. I've always been really passionate about social justice, activism. So I've always looked for ways to incorporate those two things. Um, so my undergraduate degrees in theater, I have another master's degree in applied drama, which is where my prison theater work comes from. It's uh, That's all theater for social outreach and social change. Um, and yeah, I guess it's just been kind of a lifelong passion. Um, and I've always written, but I've never really put that at the forefront. I've done a lot of a, a lot of collaborative theater. I've written plays, but it's always been something that I've done on the side. And going back to school to get my MFA in screenwriting was me really deciding to put the writing part first and see what happened when I did that. Nice. Um, so what was your high school experience like? Were you in, were, were you in the drama scene? Oh and my all God. That? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it was like, I mean, I feel like I have only seen fame like once, but I feel like it's pretty much exactly like that. <laughs> like sure. there's like dancers running through the halls in their leotards and drama students out in the hall practicing their monologues and the, the musicians doing their music and the art kids doing drugs somewhere. And um, <laughs> it was, it was a really, really great experience. And it teaches you at a really young age, how to conduct yourself in a professional way like how to get up in front of people and pretend that you know how how do we feel about swears on this podcast can i, can I i'm first? more than happy to swear <laughs> excellent okay well i was gonna say it teaches you at a pretty early age to pretend that you know what the fuck you're doing like to get up in front of people be scared shitless but then do it anyway um and that that was i feel one of the most valuable lessons i learned from going to a high school like that where they really treat you in an adult way it's a conservatory style system. Um, nice. Yeah. Yeah. It taught me a little bit of leadership early on because I, I wanted to, you know, I certainly didn't know how to do it professionally, but I wanted to direct my friends and do films and, you know, making those, making those ridiculous short films kind of taught me the, like, Oh, I don't always have to be Mr you know, kind of shy introvert mm -hmm. guy, I can, I can sort of step to the forefront and be like, Hey guys, step in front of the camera and do this thing. Um, yeah. And that, and that also just sort of led me to being comfortable with collaborating in, in a, in a band, musically speaking too. So that's, that's what I'm so, gr I'm so grateful. I mean, people always kind of, uh, you know, poo poo high school and <laughs> rightfully so for a lot of, for a lot of reasons, uh -huh. but I also try to look at the positive and go, uh, it, it 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 led to this kind of evolution in the arts with with me personally because for a long time I was just like uh, I'm too awkward I can't get in, up in front of people and talk mm -hmm. or you know I I listen to some radio or whatever and I don't know if I can actually do it professionally but then you get positive reinforcement from all you need is just mm -hmm. one teacher and that happened thankfully. Yeah. So I'm glad that's ha that happened for you. It sounds like on a consistent basis uh, through the creative arts in yeah, high school. Yeah, it did. And I really found um, my home more in the costume shop than performing. So um, I spent like many years thinking I was going to be a costume designer, which is strange because I, I, I love it, but I'm not that good at it. And it took me it took me a while to figure that out. Um but I mean, I do think that the arts, especially at that age, and like I've, you know, now I turn around and like teach high school kids and younger and older. Um, but I see the same thing when I teach, like people learning how to come out of their shell, 
learning how to work with others, which is something that is incredibly valuable <laughs> across the board. Um, and yeah, learning how to work in teams and how to express themselves and figure out what that expression looks like. Like it doesn't have to be that you're the loudest kid in the room or you're the funniest or, you know, like, yeah, I love the quiet kids when I'm teaching as well. Cause there's, there's like hidden depths in there. Oh, I don't doubt it. I, I, I bet, you know, there, there, especially in when I think of um, me not being like the funniest guy in the room, I was, I was good at playing the straight man. And you need a good straight mm -hmm. man in, in comedy. You don't, you know, that, that kind of seemed to work to my benefit for because I would get laughs by not being funny, more or less. <laughs> like I would just be me, and then suddenly it was like, oh, he's 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 not trying to show off, and sometimes that's a plus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. jumping ahead, I okay. I know you and Dan moved out to London for a short while after your time. In Chicago, which was all too brief, in my opinion. Yes, <laughs> it's very cold there. I'm a Texas I girl. I just, oh, it's yeah. It, I love the city. The snow and the ice just killed me. I I understand that. I understand that's <laughs> the, that's the only downside for me, really, is that mm -hmm. when it gets below zero and there's ice, uh, yeah. But <sighs> did you did you have a fulfilling experience moving overseas and sort of trying out a theater program? in what was kind of a different climate and culture uh, in a place like London? Yes and no. I love, I loved my program. I went through the applied drama program at Goldsmiths. It's just a year long master's program. I fucking loved that program. Like it was nice. just like being in a big hug all year. Like applied theater people are like the loveliest, warmest, like they all just want to like do workshops and have feelings and make plays about them together and like help people. And it's lovely. Um, the city itself was really difficult to live in, especially because Dan and I were living on loans. We shared like a literally a 350 square foot apartment for about six months of it. And <laughs> London is a, is another one of those cities that I love and found really difficult to live in. Um, I made a lot of really good friends, and I really enjoy British culture. But again, I'm a Texas girl, and I need some sun and some space. And those are two things that London is uh, in short supply of, for sure. Um, but the program I loved, and the people that I worked with I loved. And like the organizations that I got to intern with, and wanted jobs with like Clean Break, which is a very like a 35 year old prison theater program in London for women uh, is where I really got my start doing that kind of work. And then the Unicorn, which is this fantastic children's theater I also worked with, worked for. And so there were parts of it that were amazing. But when the year was up, Dan and I were both really ready to come home. And not be on like literally on top of each other in this itty bitty tiny flat. We were in um, the neighborhood where they shot um, 28 Days Later. And I don't think they had to do much to that neighborhood uh, for the movie because it was a shithole. <laughs> um, and so we, you know, we just wanted to go back. To, and also um, the pound, it was two, $2 to the pound when we were there. And like all of my money was American money. So it was like there were so many amazing, wonderful things about it. And I was also really ready Understandable. to Understandable. There's no place like home, somebody said at some point in pop culture. I can't remember where. Uh, <laughs> but, 
Yeah. Who was that? There were some rainbows. Yeah, I don't somewhere. know. <laughs> um, but I, I gotta mm-hmm. say, I, I understand after visiting, and I, I know I should more often, after visiting Austin, I see the appeal. I see why that yeah. feels like home for someone, especially someone you know, that's active in the arts too, because that's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, some people like I, I'm working with somebody now who's from Dallas and kind of goes, yeah, Austin's like the liberal Mecca and it's so hip and everybody loves it there, but it's also being gentrified. Like I always hear, yeah, yeah I always hear these things and I kind of go, but, but South by Southwest and, and, oh, and, and Robert <laughs> Rodriguez lives there. And, like, you know, there's always these things that I sort of idealize in my mind about Austin that you know mm-hmm. i'm sure it, i'm sure like any city like chicago i'm sure it's expensive to live there but you make it work and uh-huh. you know I, I i i imagine that there's a great theater scene there although i don't hear about it as much as the film and music culture out there but it, it's clear that you built a niche um, yeah there. yeah there's a great diy theater scene here like it really it it's kind of being imperiled by the gentrification because we just lost we keep losing venues like we Hmm. keep losing our theatrical venues um because they're in what is now becoming prime real estate so they're getting sold or the rent's going way up they're getting torn down so that's that's really difficult um i know the community is really trying to come together to address that and the city is working on it some as well um but there's like this really great diy theater scene here where people are really happy to just get a group of people together and make some shit and see what happens with it. And I mean, that's really what I did. Like all of my, the plays that I did, we didn't do them in theaters. We didn't really, our company didn't really have the budget for theatrical space. So we did site specific. So I would write a show for a specific space in Austin. So the story would be heavily influenced by the space itself. And then often the actors would move around the space. The audience would move with them. Like it was at the same, it wasn't immersive theater like Sleep No More um, in New York, but it's that same kind of idea where the, you're not sitting and watching like a play happening, you know, 50 feet in front of you. You're very much a part of what's happening. I see. Yeah. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't sound gimmicky kind of like what, they did up here in Chicago, Tony and Tina's wedding. Or whatever oh, is. no, it's not that. Although I feel once again, I was way too cool for that shit at one point in my life. <laughs> I kind of feel like I'd enjoy it now, though. Um, no, it, it wasn't that kind of really immersive. Like you didn't you didn't have to talk to the actors. You know, it was just following like one one um, show we did was set on the grounds of this museum in Austin that's was built in like 1890 and is this little castle. And so it was this fairy tale and um, the all of the action moved scene to scene around the museum grounds and the audience would follow the actors and then come to a stop and watch the scene and then keep moving on. And you, they, they moved throughout the entire space through the show, um, which was really fun, really interesting because uh, we didn't quite realize there was that park after dark became a place where transient people came to hang out and and you know do some drugs hang out and so we had to kind of navigate like they really felt like it was their space which in a way it was so we had to really navigate that with them in that community and like kind of have them let us come into the park at night to do this so we like doing theater like that is like oh okay we're we're just adapting to like every new space we're in 
that's that's pretty incredible to me. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, it's very organic, but it's it, it reminds me of this, you know, the guerrilla style of filmmaking that I know like a director like Larry Cohen did with uh, this movie called God Told Me To, to mm-hmm. where he's literally like on the streets of New York filming without, you know, the the. The, the, the people there knowing right. that he's filming a movie like he just got a camera he's running through the audience and he's essentially capturing extras that are reacting in the moment uh-huh. and i think that's 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 really freeing and kind of terrifying and in a really interesting way and so whenever i watch a movie that i know is shot like that oh, man. It, it's it's just it's so invigorating to know that you can do that and i know people like william Friedkin did that early on where it was just like uh, you know, the French connection, some of those intense chase scenes and action set pieces are done without quote unquote extras, which just, I mean, that's just gotta be, yeah, a, a really interesting experience to where you have to adapt and you lose a sense of control at certain. Instances. Yeah, it, you, you do. We had another, this company that I did this with was called the exchange artists. It's still, it is still called the exchange artists. Um, we had another show that was all in parked cars in a parking lot and the hmm. plays were five minutes each and you basically they were all in a circle and the audience moved from car to car and had a separate five oh. minute play in each car and one night like someone from the neighboring I guess from the neighboring apartment complex showed up like obviously on some kind of speedy drug and they like took his shirt off and was threatening to fight our crew members <laughs> like while the show was going on, like there was this kind of brawl that started that one of our um, crew members was able to like get the guy away from everyone and calm everything down. But when you're doing these things in these public spaces and yeah, sometimes people just come up and they're not cool with what you're doing and they're going to fucking let you know. And it, it, uh, yeah, we, we really got to the point where we were prepared for almost anything to write a screenplay is a whole other experience, a, a very different kind of writing process. And I'm just curious about that process in general. How does an idea generate itself for you and what is your writing experience like? Do you have to hunker down or is it written in spurts or is it a lengthy process that you have to take a lot of time with? I think my generative process is pretty lengthy. The time I think about things and work them over in my head. Usually once I sit down to write, actually write, it goes pretty quickly. Um, I am a deadlines person. Like I need external deadlines. I, I do not, I like working on my own. Like I need deadlines where other people are involved. Um, so when I first started writing screenplays, features, I've written a lot more pilots recently, but when I first started writing features, I set myself an external deadline by like a month or two. I'd start the writing process. And then once I was kind of in the middle of it, I would set a deadline for myself by inviting a bunch of my actor friends over to read the completed screenplay. And I'd set that date like six weeks in the future. Like I'd be you know, about halfway through my screenplay and I'd be like, okay, it's time to go ahead and set a reading date. So I'd set a date, I'd cast it, like I would personally invite certain actors to come read certain parts, invite people I wanted to hear it. And then like there was no backing out at that point because it would be more embarrassing to cancel than it would be to show up with like kind of whatever I had finished. So um, I've also gotten to be a lot better about kind of just 
putting my shit out into the world when it's not completely perfect or finished and being open to that fact and to letting people give me their notes. And I mean, going through an MFA program is great because you have to churn out so many pages every week. You feel like they're garbage. And then, you know, your group reads them and maybe they are and maybe they aren't, but at least you've got a starting point. You've got words on paper. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I was even talking with a a former professor in, in how deadlines and structure, the, the actual, like even just the syllabus really helped me Mm -hmm. get that mindset of creating my own deadlines and making sure I work well. Cause I just don't work well without those things to sort of navigate when and how things should get done. So it's almost like, yeah, I need, I need the, I need kind of the routine and the structure that comes with, you know, setting that setting deadlines. And I think having other people involved, especially now that, you know, I've created this podcast network has really let me uh, be comfortable with that and be really, really attuned to that experience. But I think, you know, writing for me is still is still challenging just because it is so I, I, I'm so easily distracted. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking about this, you know, we can sort of bridge over into this question that I've been asking nearly every guest now is just because to me, writing is still a challenge simply based on the fact that my phone will be lighting up to tell me what's going on in the world. And that will immediately shut me down because, well, most of the time the news is bad. And as of late, it's been horrendous. Um, so how do you feel about the just the current state of social media oh, and technology? Do you, <laughs> do you feel like you have a healthy relationship with it or feel overwhelmed by it? I'm just curious. I, oh God. So I am, and I'm not like trying to jump to plugging my shit or anything, but because I'm right in the middle of a crowdfunding campaign, I can't. Sure not be on it and not engage with it i i try i hate social media like i hate it but like everyone else i'm on it all the fucking time um and every i go through stages and i will generally completely unplug from facebook which is the one that i'm on the most um for about a month at a time and i'll just I'll, you know, suspend my account, get it off my phone and feel my brain slow down and calm down. And and then I'll feel like I'm starting to miss things because I am, because that's how so much like event planning and just keeping in touch with people happens. So I'll log back in and then over the next several months, we'll get to the point where I'm just on it all the time. And I just kind of repeat this cycle several times a year. Um, but it is a, it's a huge distraction when I'm writing. Um, I don't, I mean, I set timers for myself. I, you know, used to have a program on my old computer that would block Facebook when I was working. I got a new computer and was like, oh, it's too hard to figure that out again. I'll just have willpower. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so I, I also, um, yeah, I think like everyone else, I have a hard time with it. I, I really try to not get hooked into the news cycle. Um, I will look at it and read it. I work very hard. And honestly, it's kind of a cheat because I'm married to a journalist. 
So like, I know that if something huge happens, Dan's going to tell me, or if I'm not on, you know, Twitter or Facebook for a day, I can be like, what happened? What's going on in the world? So like, he sort of carries that burden for me sometimes, which is not fair. Um, but I know he's going to be on it anyway. Uh, and I mean, the world is, everything is terrible. The world is terrible. I don't know. I don't have any great tips for dealing with it. You know, I meditate, I meditate a lot. Um, probably still not as much as I should. Uh, I, I just, when I feel that hook of wanting to, I just try to be very mindful of feeling that kind of hook and that pull of wanting to be on it all the time and try to acknowledge it and step away from it as much as I can. Mindful is a good word to use when it comes to things that we worry about and could potentially cause some sort of harm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or at least, I, I mean, that's something that I, I try to do now, especially with food and, and other things is that, okay, I, if I eat this way today, <laughs> then tomorrow I'm going to try. And I mean, maybe it's overthinking to where it takes some of the pleasure and enjoyment out of spontaneity eating right. and things like that. But it, I think it's necessary when you know you can go down a dark path. Oh my God. All of my spontaneous eating is like eating a whole pizza. Well, yeah. <laughs> like my spontaneous eat, like I don't, I don't know if <laughs> my spontaneous eating is like eating the whole thing and then more is like, oh, that uh, that pint of ice cream wasn't quite enough. I'm just going to keep spontaneously eating this next one. And that could be due to the news. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. So let's get to some good news because okay. earlier this summer, uh, HBO announced 11 writers selected <gasps> out did. of 3,600 submissions. I know. To participate in the 2017 HBO Access Writing Fellowship. Which you are a part of. Um, what is what, what was that experience like? And what what will become of the work that you created during that time? The experience, I mean, the whole thing has been bananas. Uh, because I feel like, mo- you know, a lot of networks have these fellowships for emerging writers. And I applied to all of them. Except, you know, yeah, I applied to pretty much all of them this year. And... I didn't expect to get called by any of them. I mean, so many people apply and your script has to resonate with such a, the right person in the right moment, you know, that, that it just seems completely unfathomable that it would happen. (laughs) And so they called me, they just, they called me like out of the blue. I, I looked at my phone and I was like, I don't recognize that area code. I'm not answering that shit. And I get this voicemail that's like, hi, Kat, you know, you're being, you're a semifinalist for HBO Fellowship. And I was like, oh my God. And, you know, I spent the next like 30 minutes trying to get back in touch with them, but they were like calling everyone. So, um, so the process was there were 30 semifinalists and then we were interviewed. We did phone interviews with um, some of the executives and then that group was narrowed down. And that was like a, like a general meeting, you know, they're like, tell us about yourself. Why'd you write this script? What do you want? What do you want to do? What's your career path? That kind of thing. And then we, uh, that was narrowed down to finalists. And then the finalists went and pitched uh, three ideas to HBO. And we were offered the chance to do it via Skype. And I, I was like, nope, I'm coming to LA. I'm going to come do this in person. So I went to the HBO offices and pitched and then, and one thing that was great about this process was it was very fast. Like once they 
you know, from semifinalist to finalist was like a week or two weeks. And then we, then it was like a week till I pitched and then it was like another week till I found out. So I did, yeah, I did feel like I was on a strange reality show, but like where no one was watching, um, because I felt like I was going through these elimination rounds, but it all happened very quickly. So that was, that was really great. Actually, that was a really great part of it. Um, and now the program is that I'm paired with an executive at HBO, who's my mentor and, we will be, we are currently developing a pilot over really until February. We're working on a pilot script together. Yeah. And that pilot script, like that, it's really so I can have like a really great writing sample as I start my career. It's so I can have these really great connections. And also there is the possibility that um, HBO will then, take that script and make it into a short film. They alternate their writing fellowships with their directing fellowships. So their directors direct the writer's scripts, but they direct kind of shortened, like condensed versions of it. And then they submit those. They do the festival circuit with these short films. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. Yeah. That's really fantastic. So uh, yeah, just talk about some of your current projects because the, the one that you're uh, um, campaigning for right now is called Charlotte and Charlie, and it's being produced by the Exchange Artist Studio, and it has a rather successful Indiegogo campaign behind it right now. But yeah, talk talk about it some more. Oh my God, I can I I mean the Indiegogo campaign like we're we're not even a week like we launched on Tuesday. It is now is it Sunday? Yes, it's Sunday. It is Sunday. And we're already at like 90% of our goal. And it's a small goal. It's 6,500. But, you know, right. you never know how crowdfunding is going to go. So um, I'm just thrilled that it is. It seems like people are really responding to the idea of it and to the story. It's a short film. Um, you know, I'm, I'm done with the MFA program at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, but I was in it for two years. And uh, I... I recruited, corralled, persuaded, befriended a lot of the MFA production students and uh, my friend Artemis Anastasiadou, who is a filmmaker from Greece, who is in that program. Uh, she and I had collaborated on some other projects and I asked her to direct this script that I wrote, this short script, which um, is called Charlotte and Charlie. It's based on my personal experiences with, um, I've had a lot of problems with my vision since birth. I had some catastrophic oh, surgeries right. when yeah. I was 23 and I had to stop driving, which in Texas is like a death sentence. Um, and so this film is really about, it's about a young woman named Charlotte who has this amazing 1976 BMW oh. named Charlie. Um, and it's a, it's really about their last day together. Like it started as a play for the exchange artists. It started as one of these car plays. And my thought was, because I love like magical realism. I love the fantastical. Like I write really adult comedies, but I also really love like YA and like Philip Pullman and really magical sure. books for young audiences. And so this film really draws upon that. And my thought was, well, Charlotte has to say goodbye to her car, Charlie, but what if Charlie doesn't want to say goodbye? And what happens when the car decides that like, no, you're not going to stop driving. Like we're best friends. Um, so it's about Charlotte trying to say goodbye to Charlie and Charlie not being cool with it. And the film culminates in this 
the climax of the film is animated, oh, wow. actually. Um, they go on this animated, this final, I wanted them to have like a final journey together so that they really get to say goodbye to each other. And so they, uh, they go into <laughs> space. <laughs> they like, Charlie comes to life and has been following Charlotte around the city as she's trying to get to work on foot. Um, in the Texas heat. We shot this in August last year and it was like a fucking right. hundred degrees yeah. every day. My the crew did an amazing job. No <laughs> one died. Like no one no one had heat stroke or heat exhaustion. We went through like 80 cases of LaCroix. Um and uh yeah and so it, it we have this really beautiful animated sequence um where she and Charlie go into space and it gets frightening and Charlotte realizes that like she is truly done with this part of her life. So it, it ends in a bittersweet way. I think it's important for me with this story to acknowledge that uh, bad shit happens in your life and in people's lives, but also Charlotte and many people in general who deal with this kind of crisis are resilient and continue to live their lives and, and adapt and find ways to live with their new realities. It does sound like a great testament to resilience and just celebrating... Um like a personal connection with anything and it, it doesn't have to be a person because certainly there are, are objects throughout our lives that we do have a, you know a relationship with because we we see them every day or they like a car mm -hmm. can get us from point a to point b or we just because of you know the routine of seeing them or it every day um it's yeah there's there's something personal about that clearly that you know i think will speak to you know, even even younger audiences, I, it sort of has like a to me like a Michelle Gondry kind of feel yeah. to it with the fantastic. And we it. really it it to me yes to me as well because our I mean it is a low budget film. We did shoot green screen, but like we shot green screen in my driveway. You know, like it is. Huh. Um, it looks really good, and it is still low budget. You know, um, so it does have that same DIY ethos that you know that my theater has had and that I think my filmmaking will continue to have as long as I'm producing it myself <laughs> um uh yeah and we also were really like this the music in the movie in the film is all like not is all like uh girl punk bands and it's you know oh, it yeah. has kind of like a riot girl sort of 90s girl punk feel to it um yeah like the music's awesome so i had a friend who was watching a cut of it and they were like oh this is like a zine like this this feels like a zine to me and i was like yeah cool <laughs> wow that's a that's a nice compliment like yeah a zine in uh in, a, in film form uh-huh yeah that's cool mm -hmm. no that's really great i'm really excited for it and I uh, I just contributed today. I saw. <laughs> Thank and, you. And uh, I'm very yeah I'm very happy to do so, and I will be linking to that Indiegogo campaign in the show notes for everybody to check out and hopefully contribute to because Cat uh, is one of the more, most talented people I know and working actively and doing amazing work. So I'm really excited. Uh, for my last question, I kind of been asking you know people this too as just like a general, you know, what's on your bucket list? Uh -huh. What do you really want to accomplish? Now, is it can be anything, but at the same time, is there a creative project maybe that you really want to 
accomplish at some point? Like, is there just like this ambitious idea? I mean, obviously you don't have to go into great detail about it. No, no. I think, oh man. So, and so the script that got me through the gates at HBO is a script that is very dear to my heart and that I just don't know how anyone will ever make it, honestly. Mm. Um, it's called Shmabortion. So I currently work, yeah, so I currently work for an abortion hotline in Texas. So if people, you know, we have limited access to clinics. A lot of our clinics closed about two years ago and, mm. or is it three years? Oh God, I don't know. Um, and so I work for this hotline and people call in and when they want to have an abortion and they cannot afford it. And we offer them um, grants. We offer them small amounts of money to try and help them get there. So I've been there about five years. I've probably heard from about 5,000 people at this point. Um, and abortion is a super touchy subject. And I respect that, uh, that people might have different views on it. Um, but the script that I wrote called from abortion, it's a half hour pilot, you know, single cam, comedy pilot and it's about a young woman from East Texas who is very uh, pro-life, very much like a pro-life activist and she comes to Austin with her boyfriend and wrangles a job at an abortion clinic so she can bring it down from the inside and once she gets in the clinic she realizes that of course nothing is what she thought Um, she's like where are the baby parts (laughs) Um, and it is a, it's a very, it's a Kimmy Schmidt style comedy. Like it's very lighthearted. Um, and I wanted to write it from Casey is the lead is the protagonist. And I wanted to write it from her point of view because I wanted a viewpoint character who was learning about this world for the first time. And it, it, it is, it is, it's lighthearted. Um, it's just as much about the relationships that she starts, the friendships she starts making with clinic staff and the way that, and with the people who are coming into the clinic and her realizations that everything is not as black and white as she thought it was. Um, and I also, I live in Texas. I'm from Texas, you know, from the Bible Belt. And so I'm really interested in religion and how religion affects our daily lives here, even when we're not religious ourselves. Um, yeah. So that is the thing that like, if no one ever makes that in at some point, I will be making that myself. Um, I, again, I, I am so excited for your future and, uh, you got a pretty great husband to boot. Oh man. I got a good one. (laughs) Yeah. You you know how to pick them. Um, Uh (laughs) so it's been a pleasure to get to know more about you as a person and your, your career and your talents. And I have no doubt that the listeners will feel the same way. I'll be championing your future projects, I'm sure along the way. So all the very best. And I can't wait to see, uh, this, this film once it's completed. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on here and for this lovely conversation. And yes, thank you. I really appreciate it. Yay! <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Thank you so much, Catherine Kraft, as well as Jonathan Millot, for appearing on Voices and Visions, as well as the Directors Club for this bonus episode. Please visit directorsclubpodcast.com, nowplayingnetwork.net, and voicesvisions.net. I'm Jim Laskowski. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Who's gonna tell you when? It's too